0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Stuttering Foundation podcast. This is Sarah McIntyre, recording from Philly, and I'm welcomed by da- D- Dr. Ellen Kelly, who, who who's in Nashville today. Hey, hey, Ellen. Hey, Sarah.
1: It's so much fun to be doing a podcast together today.
0: I know, and time has flown. I feel like it's been a few months since we've had one of our episode conversations, and I'm looking forward to our chat. Me too. We are going to talk a little bit about the (laughs) intricacies and importance of listening within our clinical practice and, and counseling skill development as clinicians. This is a topic that we've, we've been talking about off air before hitting record a little bit about how important it is to have a foundational understanding of counseling skills. And we were talking a little bit about some of the, the key things that we would want to explore with, with our graduate students as well as emerging clinicians. And this might become a little bit of a series where we'll co- combine some counseling skills segments all all, all, all to- together. So today's about listening and the power of listening. How do we want to start this off, Ellen?
1: That's a great question. You know, so often we hear, listen, and we all know that it's really important. And I think we all also know that it's really hard to truly listen to another person We are bombarded all the time by so many things that we're hearing, especially in social media and computers and television and on and on and on in the environment around us. And so we try to pick out those things that are important to us. And yet in the listening, especially that we do clinically and in personal relationships, true listening is really about the other person and finding out more about them, and while we're doing so, maybe leaving ourselves, if not entirely, but
0: at least quite a bit in the background. I think I'm self-admittingly guilty of that more times than I'd like to admit in relation to having an agenda, even though you try not to have an agenda of where you're hoping things will go or how you are hoping you can guide things and it ends up clogging up your brain and being fully present and listening and and allowing the other person to to guide the way. And so that that always comes to mind and I always feel sort of conflicted about talking about the importance of active listening and listening because I am guilty of this self-admittedly myself and I I so I just want to put that out there I'm not we're not talking about this in any means of saying we're you know, you should be doing this or you shouldn't. No, we're just kind of exploring this a little bit deeper to get everyone's gears churning and really reflect on on all that we have going on in the world around us in our he- head and then maybe some some ideas and reminders to why it's so important to to really consider this again and and deeper.
1: That's a great point, Sarah. And I think that might be a really wonderful place to operate from. So it's very natural for us to come in with some sort of an agenda, even if it's the fact that we've had our own experiences with other people. In our own lives, with our clients, our students come in and they have less of those experiences. So maybe in some ways, if they weren't so nervous about getting it right, they might do better at not coming in with an agenda because they really haven't developed it or at least not as intricately. But maybe we could think about, well, what if your agenda was different? So it wasn't about confirming your hypothesis or... Pulling out from what the person shares, those things that fit into what you think or what you expect or what that agenda might be, but instead asking oneself the question, I wonder what agenda they're coming in with and if I can figure that out as if I'm a blank slate when it comes to knowing what that might be. And how do we figure out their agenda? Yeah. So what is really deep listening about? Well, it's being fully present in the conversation. So those tapes that are in our heads or those ideas, those agendas that we have, putting those to the background, almost like we do in mindfulness where feelings and other experiences are there, but they're kind of floating maybe back of mind. So we acknowledge that they're there, but they're not what's most important to us. And really thinking about why are you here? How can I be helpful to you? So those open-ended questions that we start with when we meet someone new and we're interviewing them and we're trying to figure out why they're coming to us, what they're experiencing. And we are trying to think, what do we have to offer them? But before we can figure that out, we need to know why they're here. And so perhaps the place to start is with something very open-ended. Fill me in on why you're here today. What brought you to see me? How can I be helpful to you? Those kinds of things. And then that's where the act of listening starts to put it out there and then to wait and see what they bring to the table in what order at what level what's top of mind
0: for them something else that i can imagine and i i here 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 i am playing the role of all the potential pitfalls kind of foot in mouth moments that i find myself contemplating in terms of a response one tempting route is to try to fix or to help or to respond to something that someone said right then and there in that first initial response by us as clinicians. But can you talk through a little bit from your expertise? Because I, I learned from you in so many ways. And so what would you be thinking beyond that in, in terms of the do's and don'ts in terms of what's helpful versus not helpful?
1: Well, Sarah, I have to give you that compliment right back. And I always learn so much from our conversations and from your own incredible work that you do. So um, thank you in, in both directions. And that's why it's fun to always podcast with you to kind of think things through and add to my own understanding as we go. You know, I think that when, for example, we're trying to help students who feel like, well, I really don't know how to do this yet. How do I begin? How do I help? And they're often thinking about I need to get to knowing what it is that I'm going to do to fix the problem. And that's a pretty natural human tendency. I think we also tend to want to be active. We want to do something. And often that do in a conversation is to talk, to say something, to answer a question, or to say something that makes someone feel better, when they're expressing any kind of emotion, whether directly or indirectly through things like like body language. And for people that are in professions like ours, who are very caring and want to help, then there's this natural tendency to want to get after, to get active in the helping. But one of the things that can happen is that if we jump in too soon or we take something in a direction that maybe the client wasn't going to take it. And we only know if we allow them to continue and we encourage them to continue and take it in whatever direction they want, that we can shut down perhaps really understanding their point of view and even not have the opportunity to be surprised by the way they think about things. One example that I can think of is that oftentimes we have people who say, well, I don't want to stutter anymore, or I want my child to grow out of stuttering. That's what I really want. Um, Or can you tell me if my child is going to continue to stutter over time? And those are very realistic and very real world questions that they ask of us. But if we think about, well, what if we try to jump right in and answer that? Well, when people say, well, I'd like to stop stuttering, and you have an adult sitting there who has stuttered and has been telling you about experiences with their stuttering throughout their lifetime, oftentimes if you wait or if you say, well, what do you think about that? They will say, well, I've stuttered this song. I'm probably going to continue to stutter, but it would be great if I didn't have to deal with it then instead of answering their questions, giving them information, facts, whatever, though your head might be full of those, you've invited them to share what they think about it. And then you ask for a little bit more. And you're forming a picture of them rather than a picture of them that fits into whatever framework you're expecting. And it's almost like When you have information, you would be shaping someone to hit the mean, the average, what we know about that population, like from a study, rather than saying, well, which point when I look at everybody who participated in this study is that person? Where are they? Because they're not all going to be at that mean or at that median or at
0: that middle spot. If that makes any sense. Total sense. I love that example. And it really speaks to the importance of thinking about this person's journey and this person's experience. And I think part of being a good listener clinically is to get curious about this person's experience and to assume that we don't know what it's like or what they want or where they've been and to ask questions. I mean, I think when I think about what is listening within within clinical practice and counseling skills, my my mind immediately goes to sitting in silence and hearing and being present to what the other person is saying, which is very true in terms of wanting to give them the space that they need, allowing yourself to be uncomfortable in that silence moment. But I think listening and thinking about active listening skills, there are things that we can do that Help us to be better listeners, like thinking about how we respond and what that looks like and where that might shift the direction of things and sorting. Is this where I wanted to go? Like you have said, or is this where they wanted to go? And I think asking questions is something pretty simple, but yet not easy. And something that if, if I'm reminding myself to do something to make sure it continues to be on their terms. And, and this session continues to be guided by their needs, I lean to what question could I ask? What's a simple guiding clarification question or simple, tell me more about such and such. I'm teaching a graduate class now and we'll we'll talk about something and then we'll debrief as a class and the students are getting pretty acclimated to when when I'm asking them, well, where, where might you take this from here? What, what, if someone says this or, or shares this, what, what could be your, your response? And, and now they're picking up on it and they're saying, let me guess, it's probably a tell me more situation, huh? And I guess I lean on that a lot clinically, but it is a really nice way to get a little bit deeper and a little bit clarification and specificity from that person.
1: Well, Sarah, you hit on so many different aspects of great listening there. As you were talking about the sitting and non-judgmentally listening, you're talking about being fully present. You're talking about showing interest. You're going to show that non-verbally. You're going to show that verbally by asking questions that show clearly that you listened and you want more information. You're going to paraphrase or reflect back or repeat part of what people said, key points that you wanted to reflect back, or perhaps that you didn't fully understand, where you could ask a question that starts something like, you said X, I'm not quite sure I understood what you mean by that. Can you tell me more? Or when you said this and You could say, it made me think X, so say where that led you, but I'm not sure I got that quite right. Am I getting that right? Even to ask, am I interpreting this? Am I getting the message? Am I understanding? And when asked in a a very humble way, people will often feel very comfortable to say, oh, I can see why you thought that, but actually what I meant was... And then they get an opportunity to tell you in more detail or in a different way. It just helps deepen your understanding. It's hard for us to suspend that. Now it's my turn. Now it's my turn to jump in and answer all the questions, fix this, tell them what we're going to do with it. And we do get there. And maybe part of it is just wait a little bit longer Than when you start to get that urge to start to jump in. When might we do that? Well, talking about students, students often tell me that they tend to do that and talk more than they think they, and using the should word, when they feel uncomfortable, when the person is asking a question and They want to answer that question, even though they really don't have quite enough information to answer it well or to answer it in a way that would be really helpful to that person. It might not hurt to say, you know, that's a great question and we'll get to that. If you don't mind, I'd like to learn a little bit more so that I can answer that question in a way that really fits you and what you're sharing, what you're experiencing, what your child has been experiencing. Let me get to know you a little bit more first. Never had anyone who would object to that.
0: No, definitely not. I, I had a another student thought and I felt like this really spoke to me as well. They were talking about, well, you know, I have to go from how I would have a conversation with a friend to then switching gears and being in clinician mode and doing something different. And it got us into a really beautiful conversation. And we all sort of came to this conclusion together that maybe how we are speaking to our friend might not always be so helpful in in the routes that we might take, I'm thinking about a specific conversation i i recently had with one of my best friends and you know when you have when you're so close with someone you feel like you can just tell them what they need to hear cut to the chase and you're often then just giving advice or what they should do or what you think that they should do or what you would do in their shoes and while Maybe there's an eventual time and place for some of that. I'm not saying you should you should completely alter yourself within your who, who you are and within that kind of banter and comfort and friends, but how invalidating that can be or can feel when all you really wanted was someone to listen and be a sounding board to. And so we had this conversation about how lovely it would be to practice some of this stuff in some conversations with our friends, I don't know what how you feel about that, Ellen. But I that came to mind, and I loved that that conversation in class.
1: I love that that came up and that you really explored it with the
0: students because
1: I think if we really stopped to think about it, if our conversations really were of the deep listening, suspending judgment trying to help the person, whether a friend or a client, get to where they need to go, then suspending that agenda, that taking over, that active solving is going to work across context. When I teach counseling, one of the questions that I ask the students to think about is, who do you go to? For different things that come up in your life. Who do you go to when you have a problem that you want to solve? Who do you go to when you want to vent? Who do you go to when you are really unsure and you just want to share something that you don't want anybody else to know? So you want it to be held in complete confidence. And the students start to think about that. And some of them will say, this person I go to for all of those things. And I can say to that person, look, I just want to vent. Or I can say to that person, I'm not sure what to do about this. Will you listen and then help me think about some potential solutions? And then others will say, well, I know if I don't want my problem solved, if I just want someone to listen, I go to this person. But if I want some ideas, especially if it's not something that's upsetting me that I just really need to vent before I can begin to think about solving it, then I'm not going to that person because they're going to come up with a list and say, you know, these would all be good things to do. Why don't you try that? Or they might say, you know, it's really not that big a deal. You need to separate yourself from it. And that's not what I want to hear right now. And I would bet that most of the time when we're dealing with something that we can solve ourselves, that it's just not a little story we wanted to tell, but it's something that we're really trying to figure out that, I don't know, 90% of the time, maybe more, we just want to put it out there. And while we're doing that, and the other person is feeling inactive maybe in some ways, but if they're really listening, they're working pretty hard to get it. Then maybe as we listen to ourselves, we're already moving toward a solution. And you can't solve anything when emotions are high. So the very act of telling the story or what's bothering you or what you need help with is already going to start the process of moving toward a solution. And as a listener, you've helped because you've allowed the person to put it out there, listen to themselves, have it heard, and start moving toward decreasing the intense emotions sometimes or even putting
0: it out there and finding out, you know, Wasn't quite
1: as bad as I thought it was. Now that I've said it,
0: when we're we're having a conversation with a friend, or we're 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 in a session, you know, working with a client as a clinician, and somebody's experiencing pretty heightened emotions, I think we can, and this is just human. I think that we can want to reduce that emotion pretty quickly by changing the topic or saying, oh, it's not that bad or it's okay. And those can be pretty invalidating, but we are just uncomfortable in that moment. And so we're making those choices to move it in a different direction. What would you do in those situations? And could you offer your brain and and maybe some examples of responses there?
1: Wow. Yeah. And that is such a real experience. Why? Because when we're engaging with our friends, our family, our clients, we deeply care. We're, going, we're in a caring, helping profession because we want to help other people who are challenged and in our own personal lives, We want our relationships to be better and stronger. We want people to be fulfilled when people have experienced something that's been really difficult. We want to help. And it's such a natural tendency because at the same time that they're emoting Through our empathy, we're feeling for them. We want to make them feel better. And in all truthfulness, we also want to feel better because sometimes the angst you have for someone else can be, I think, even greater than the angst we might have about ourselves. Because when it's ourselves, we have an idea of, you know, I'm upset, but I can deal with it. When somebody else is hurting who we really care about, we do want to jump in there and fix it. One of the ways that can be helpful with that is to acknowledge the emotion, acknowledge the difficulty, acknowledge the challenge, how it makes the person feel that you're noticing. And you do that not by trying to solve it, Or normalize it or decrease it to a level that feels better for you and you're hoping will feel better for them. But by simply, even though it's difficult, acknowledging that it is hard, that it's upsetting, that you can see why they wanted to share that or how frustrating that must have been or how angry that made you feel. And there are times when just acknowledging that you wish you could do something to fix it, but you can't. People That resonates with people. I so, say, wow, that's really hard. I would just love to talk to that person and set them straight. Uh, I remember when my daughter was a teenager and she'd bring something to me and I'd say, well, you know what? Mama bear just wants to go and tell them off, but I'll bet that's not what you want me to do. And she would laugh and say, no, 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 we don't need mama bear here. But it would be my natural emotional response because my daughter was upset or hurt or something like that. And then we could kind of laugh about it, which also brings the emotion down. And I say, so what are you thinking? What might the next step be if we're at that point in the conversation? And someone might just say, you know, I don't know, but I just, I wanted to put it out there and I really appreciate your listening. And you might feel like, "Uh, I didn't do much. And you might even say, well, I really didn't do much. But isn't it interesting how often when you've done that for someone, they'll say to you, you know what, I needed to get that off my chest. I needed to vent about that. I needed to say that out
0: loud. And you're taking the time to listen made a huge difference. I totally agree and I I can see myself in not necessarily mama bear role but best friend role and you know just wanting to to do what you can and I think that innately we all have this this as association with doing with helping and I think that we could take a look at that a little bit and think a little bit about what proportion of the pie of helping might actually be just listening and validating and eh, 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 em, empathizing being there being a support being non-judgmental about that and helping the people in our lives whether it be work or personal to just explore and debrief what it is that they're they're experiencing when you were explaining the, the situation with your, with your daughter, just all, all, of, all, all, all of those helpful things that you were just sharing then, I had this, this me- mental memory of how we should be thinking about that throughout our clinical interactions or personal interactions, not that just initial, can you tell me more about that? The more time I wait, the more the other person naturally adds on to what they were sharing or takes it where they want to go anyway. And so I guess another point that I'd just like to send is either a reminder to everyone, reminder to myself is to leave a little bit more space throughout because we might be amazed at what that space then tells the other person about what's there.
1: I think that is such wise advice and suggestion. It reminds me of just the simple expression, wait for it. There's a listening exercise that I do when I, when I teach counseling and build listening skills little by little. So when they first start in a pair listening to each other, the person who's listening has to start out as a cardboard cutout. So they do nothing, nothing nonverbal, nonverbal, except to maintain eye contact. And then the next step is you can add some nonverbals. You can nod your head. You're still making eye contact. You can look puzzled or curious, all nonverbal. The next step is you can add some verbal encouragers. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Hmm. Those kinds of things. In some cases, not even real words, but you're just encouraging them. And even more helpful if as you describe, there's some silence there. So I'm just allowing it. If you're just shaking your head like, oh, I see, I get it, without saying anything, it's an encouragement for them to continue. And then the next thing would be to reflect back something they've said. Then the next step would be to reflect back some of what's being conveyed, maybe emotionally, or a description of the situation in the sense of things like, wow, that was really hard, or that was really difficult for you to go through, or that really made you feel like they didn't care about you, or whatever it might be. And it's still all about them, puts it back. And then if that's followed by a pause, and then Well, tell me more, or how did that make you feel? Or have you thought about what you're going to do about that? And putting it back in their laps, professionally, but also personally. Ultimately, we're responsible for ourselves. And so, we want to help other people to be able to do for themselves. So, we're always trying to suspend that. Let me do for you. Another old expression you can give someone fish to eat, or you can teach them how to fish for a lifetime. Where if they're learning to do the skill, which takes a little bit longer in the preparatory phase, so that they can be active. It also always strikes me that we make an assumption that listening is not active and it's unbelievably active, maybe a harder active because you have to hold back from doing things that would be easier, that would take over, that would derail the person from being in charge of it. And yet with our clients, we want them to be in charge. They come to see us because they're they're in a difficult spot they're having difficulty communicating, and they want to learn more so that they can do that better. And we want to help them figure it out for themselves so they can go back out and do it better in a way that's fulfilling for
0: them. Really well said. And thank you for walking us through that clinical activity or sequence that builds upon each other. Many will say, well, where do I start in practicing some of this? Because it can feel kind of scary to to like flip a switch for yourself and then you have this pressure of I should be doing this. And so I think it might be nice to start by incorporating something small like that for a few minutes at home or with a friend. You don't even have to tell them that you're you're doing anything different. In fact, it's probably just lovely to not. But you could just think, you know what, I'm going to leave a little bit more space there before I respond. Or I am going to respond with more nonverbal responses during this this conversation about the day day or something like that, and then sequence it that way and and start weaving it into your clinical practice. I, you know, I feel for young clinicians who are just getting out there because they have so many things in their mental agenda. To remember to do, um, and a lot of it is because it's new, and they are worried that they're going to be graded or judged, and then they are seeing the, the time on the clock tick, and they feel like they need to get something or that they need to get to the meat of what it is they're doing, or the activity or exercise. And there's time and space for for all of that, but to remember that this is very much a part of what's going to make it a, a s- successful session or a therapeutic experience. So I wouldn't think about this as like a checkbox. Okay, we did counseling check. We can get right right to the activity now or that you're wasting someone's time because I think that that can be an insecurity that many can feel early on. And even later on, I you know, I don't want to isolate anyone who who really wants to delve deeper and to explore more and to build upon their their clinical skills in that way.
1: Yes, yeah, I think that's so beautifully said. And a couple of times in our conversation, the word curiosity has come up and i think that might be something that that people can embrace whether it is and i love that idea of try this in some small moments in your daily life with other people you're in relationship with just try it out to leave a little bit more space or to ask a question or to use nonverbals or something that keeps the other person talking and keeps the focus on them when you are first learning about someone, people are usually good at at least asking a lot of questions to get to know them. And they ask back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and listen better But maybe even to wait on the questions and just to be curious about what can I learn about this person and maybe be surprised about. So in that sequence that I partially talked about of of building the listening skills, when we debrief afterwards... There's always some students who say, you know what? One of the unexpected benefits was that I felt like the agenda was totally up to me when I was the speaker. I could have taken it in any direction that I wanted. No one jumped in to tell their story or their opinion or what they know about it or anything like that. It was it was all what I wanted to share. It didn't get hijacked.
0: Yes, I love that. I think we could talk, continue to talk about this. And we had, we had prefaced this episode by saying we're going to try to keep it semi brief. I think that this is really emphasizing that hopefully we can make this a, a recurring segment where we can talk a little bit on helping to support people's growth in, in counseling skills. I, I hate to separate it like that because I think this is just part of our clinical work. And so helping people to, 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 to continue to grow as clinicians. Thank you, Ellen, for, for taking us into your clinical and personal life and experiences and sharing those, offering suggestions and, and ways that people could practically put this into practice, and just for, for being you and sharing all that you have to share.
1: Oh, Sarah, you're so welcome. And, and likewise, thank you. I really look forward to our podcast together and just to explore as we do when we're not recording as well, our experiences and our clients and personal kinds of things, just to grow as human beings and really support one another in our
0: journeys. And I so appreciate your friendship um, professionally and personally. Vice versa, thank you. Well, thank you listeners for being with us. You are going to be hearing this in just a couple weeks time and hope you're enjoying your summer if it's summer by you and continue to send us recommendations, clinical questions you have that you might want us to talk through. I'll link to that all in the description. If you haven't subscribed to the Ask the Stuttering Foundation YouTube channel, please do. And looking forward to talking with you all next month. Bye.